0: Well, we've reached the end of our Ephesians series, closing it down here today. In this series, we've called An Ancient Church in an Anxious Age. And we started this about four months ago. We had an interlude with Advent. And I would say over the last four months, uh, there's only more reason for anxiety in our external circumstances than when we started. Maybe we hope that wouldn't be true. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think we expected to see war in Europe at this time. And, sh- and so we are an ancient church in an anxious age. It's, it's tempting to try to draw our sense of what is real, what is most real in this world, from what is going on externally around us, when actually what is most abiding are the ancient truths of the scriptures. And we're called to go back there. And Paul calls us to go back there in Ephesians and to anchor our lives in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of war, in the midst of all these things that Clay prayed about, the things in our lives that are, that are really going on that we don't want to talk about, we don't know what to do about, we don't know how to understand. We serve an ancient God. From age to age, he is the same, and he will carry us through. And throughout Ephesians, I just want to remind you of where we've come and the blessings of God that he has given us. He has poured out his blessings on us. In Jesus Christ, we find in chapter one, all of these spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ, he's lavished his love upon us, he's adopted us as sons, he's given us his glorious grace, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins. So individually, we have been given grace from God. Then in chapter two, we've learned about how he has given us grace in community, how he has made one new man out of the two, reconciling us, Jew and Gentile, through the blood of his cross. Christ has given that to us. And then chapter three, we we see a prayer from Paul where Paul is praying that we would know the love of God, that we would know the deep and high and wide love of God for us, and that we would take hold of it, that we would know what is incomprehensible, which is the love of God. And then in chapter four, he moves into what to do, how to respond to that love. And he says, first of all, I call you church to unity, unity in the gospel, Unity in the first things, unity in the spirit, unity in the doctrines of the faith. And then he calls us to purity. He says, I want you to be pure. I want you to be pure in the ways that you treat one another, in your words, your actions, your minds, your real lives and relationships with other people. And then he moves on to the end of chapter 5, and he says, this shouldn't just impact you generally as a church in unity and purity. It should impact your relationships. It should impact your marriages, how husbands and wives treat each other. It should impact your families, how children and parents treat each other. And it should impact your relationships in the real world, even with slaves and masters at that time, and in our own history, which we talked about last week, and in work, and in every area of life, we now serve a new master. And so we reach this place in Ephesians, and now Paul gives us a gut check. And he says, listen, do you think it's going to be easy to live in the reality of all of these blessings that Jesus Christ has given you? Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be a cakewalk to walk through this life, to just be given these doctrines for them to be secured to us on the cross and at the empty tomb, handed to us for us to be called to live in these ways? Is it going to be easy for us to live this way? And he gives us a gut check and he says, no. No. It is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be very challenging. It's going to be very hard. Why? Because we have an adversary. We have someone, we have an evil one who is committed, who is quite, uh, he, he, has, has, he has power. He doesn't have power greater than our Lord, but he has power greater than us, ourselves. And if we are not walking with the Lord and depending on him, we are, we are in a real Real wrestling matches. so we're going to go into that. I want to call you back to Psalm 23. Yes, there are times in our lives by God's grace that we walk beside those still waters and he restores our soul. Those times are real and we love those times. And then there is verse 3 where we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we are told that we can fear, we should fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. And then later on he says, I prepare a table before you, and I anoint your head with oil. Where does he do that? He says, I do it in the presence of your enemies. We are not promised that we will not have suffering in this life. We are not promised that we do not have an adversary, but we are promised that we have a God who goes with us all the way and who is so powerful that even in the face of our enemies, even when he's dining across the table from us, He prepares a table of grace before us that is ours to feast in. And that's where we are today. That's what this passage is all about. That evil is real, but I'm telling you that the focus of this passage is not on Satan. We're going to talk about Satan. We're going to talk about the evil one today and his schemes. But the focus of this passage is not on Satan. The focus of this passage is on standing firm in the gospel of grace, in the strong gospel that God has given to us. If you look at this passage and you want to know what it's all about, you can just look at these five occasions where in verse 10, Paul says, you're being called to be strong. Verse 10, in the strength of his might. Verse 11, so that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, so that you may be able to withstand In the evil day. And then in verse 13, and after you have done everything to stand. The point of this passage is that Paul is equipping us to be able to stand, to stand our ground, and after we've done everything else, to stand on the evil day. The aim of the Christian life, yes, we are going to glory, but the aim of your life right now is to stand. It is to stand firm. It is to hold on. It is continue to press forward in the grace of the gospel that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And so today, this is a gut check. We're going to look at how Paul wants us to understand that we have sufficient armor in the gospel of Jesus to be able to keep standing in the face of our adversary no matter what comes our way. We have sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Continuing to stand is not an easy thing because we have an enemy who is committed to our ruin. So we need to know, first of all, we need to know our enemy. And one of Satan's greatest and most effective ways of winning his war is convincing us to a believe that he's not real, or to believe that if he's real, then it's really not that big of a deal anyway. And so those are some temptations that we face. And in our culture today, some tell us that belief in the devil or in God is unnecessary, ridiculous, and maybe even a symptom of some kind of psychosis. In fact, when you take certain, like the MMPI, it's a it's a psychology test. Uh, one of the questions is, do you have an arch enemy? And you have to recognize who wrote that test, because the correct answer to that question is yes. But if you put yes, then you're going to get a call back. Uh, we live in a world that actually wants very much for you to believe that what we war against is, is just flesh and blood. We don't war against the principalities of this dark world, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. That's not really part of what we do. But theologically and practically, unbelief or apathy about the devil will give you problems. Theologically, unbelief about the devil is a problem for you because Jesus believed in the devil. There's a lot of times where Jesus, Jesus fought the devil in the wilderness. Jesus preached about the devil. The devil, an and evil one, Jesus's adversary, was part of Jesus's worldview. So if you jettison belief in an evil one, you have to jettison Jesus's theology, which is something that you don't want to do. You also have to jettison the beliefs of the great patriarchs of the faith who wrote the Old Testament and those who wrote the New Testament. I don't think you want to go there either. So theologically, you have a problem. You can't just say, Satan's not real. I'm just not going to think about that right now. That's not the answer. And practically, you have a problem as well if you jettison belief in an evil one. Look at today with COVID, war, ethnic cleansing, cultural divisions, cancer, environmental disaster, and the greater problem of death. As far as I know, technology, psychology, education, and science, hear me here, though those disciplines and practices are very important and certainly help, certainly. Certainly they can neither explain or solve the world's greatest problems. Those disciplines are important, and many of you are involved in them, and thank God for that. But they cannot ultimately answer the greatest questions of the evils of our times. John Stott says, Paul brings us down to earth here in Ephesians 6, into realities harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition beneath the surface appearances An unseen battle is raging. What stands behind the great evils of this world is the evil one. What stands behind these harsh realities that we face is an adversary. And the solution is found not in our strength or ingenuity alone, but in the power of the gospel. So three things in this first point on knowing our enemy that we need to know about the devil that Paul teaches us here. First of all, he is strategic and then he wrestles, and he is defeated. So first of all, he is strategic, or the ESV says he schemes. He schemes. So any strategist or schemer has an endgame in mind. He has a great plan uh, that he's trying to work out. And what is Satan's endgame? Well, in John 10.10, Jesus says, "...the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy." But I have come that you may have life and might have it to the full. And so whereas Jesus has come to give life to the full, the devil has come to oppose the work of life to the full of redemption in Jesus that Jesus intends to bring in your life. So practice practically this means that if God wants you to rest in the truth and the finished work of the gospel, if that's what Jesus wants for you, then the devil wants for you to rest in the realities of your own personal performance. He wants you to gauge what everyone else thinks about you and to live in that reality. He wants you to try to live up to all the cultural standards and all the expectations that you and the world and all your friends put on you instead of in the finished work of Jesus. That's what he wants. But God wants you to rest in the grace of the gospel. If Jesus wants his church to be united in a beautiful community comprised of every tongue, tribe, and nation— then Satan wants the church to be divided along racial, ethnic, tribal, and political lines. That's what Satan wants. If the Holy Spirit wants the church to walk in purity in speech, conduct, and private life, then Satan would love to muck up the church with gossip, slander, divisiveness, and sin. That's what Satan would desire. If God is calling us to serve Him as a new master in our marriages, with our children, and in our working relationships, then Satan will do all he can do to convince us to follow ourselves, other people, or the voices of our culture. God is calling us to redemption, but Satan is strategic, and oftentimes his ways are imperceptible, but you can find him wherever the purposes of God in your life and in the world are being thwarted or challenged, I should say. So he's strategic. He also wrestles he wrestles. This is an interesting image because in wrestling, uh, what you have there is you have an opponent who is right up on you, very close, like right up in your business, right? And with Satan, we, we learn in Genesis 4 where where God is talking to Cain that he says, sin is crouching at your very door and its desire is to master you, but you must rule over it. So Paul takes that analogy a step further Now Satan is not at the door. Now he's right upon you and he's wrestling with you. He's right in your life. And so how does he work? Well, in many ways uh, he works, but here's a key one. He loves it when we are self-reliant. He loves it when, Satan loves it when we're depending on our own strength. When we believe that we've got it all together or when it's all up to us. Satan loves it when we put ourselves in that situation. He may wrestle with us overtly, physically, but he often wrestles with us internally, spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. And if you're relying on the Lord and you're standing strong in what God has said about you and in the power of the gospel, he has no power. God is so much more powerful than Satan. But you, on your own, in your own self-reliance, are not more powerful than Satan. And so he has a field day with believers who believe that they can be strong on their own. And that's when we find ourselves being pushed into despair, into darkness. He loves it when we're self reliant. I was talking to a friend the other day, and we were talking about this that in our areas of weakness, we often find it quite easy to depend on the Lord. Those areas that we say, Oh, I know I struggle with this, I know I struggle with that. But it's in our strengths that we find a hard time, we find it to have a hard time depending on the Lord. And so if we could apply the same attitude with our strengths that we do with our weaknesses, those areas where you would say legitimately you are gifted, legitimately you are strong compared to maybe other people, it's in those areas we're most tempted to be self-reliant, and it's in those areas we need to be extra careful that we have that same attitude of dependence on the Lord, even though we're strong, even though we're gifted, we are not strong enough to withstand the temptation when the day comes. It's when we put our our hope in our strengths and our abilities instead of in the Lord that we find ourselves in a vulnerable position. So Satan is strategic, he wrestles, and finally he is defeated. He is a defeated foe. So he actually is not in power in any way. Christ has already dealt the blow to him on the cross. Satan's end, end is sure. Romans 16 20 says, and God will soon crush Satan underneath his feet. There are these images in Revelation where he is cast into the lake of fire. He is a defeated foe, but a defeated foe is still a dangerous foe. When, when an enemy knows that they're about to lose, and they still have some artillery and firepower, and they have nothing left to lose, they're actually very dangerous. So not only is he defeated, but he's still dangerous He's still trying He's still trying to pick us off. He throws dirty bombs at us. Dirty bombs like lying to us, accusing us, discouraging us, dividing us, planting seeds of unbelief, making us believe that the guilt and the shame and the fear that we feel are more real than the gospel, causing us to believe that we should live in despair. One of the ways, one of the dirty bombs he throws at us is when you feel called by the Lord to take a step of faith, where you feel like the Holy Spirit is telling you to take a step of faith, and you internally, you you experience all of this opposition, and you end up deciding not to because of fear, shame, unbelief, guilt, you know whatever that narrative is that you believe instead of the gospel, you're going to take a step of faith out. You're going to follow the Lord somewhere, and Satan is just on you, and you decide not to do that. And I'm telling you, if there's something that God has put on your heart that he's calling you to do, that is an area where he's going to come at you and throw his dirty bombs. And I would encourage you, if God is calling you out in a certain area, to to get a community around you, to, to get brothers and sisters around you to pray, but take those steps of faith. That is where, that is a place where Satan does not want you to be moving out in the power of the gospel. So we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. But we also, secondly, need to know our armor, know your armor. So we're going to look at the in detail around the six pieces of armor, but before we do that, let me give you three general thoughts about the armor of God, okay? I grew up in a Pentecostal family, a lot of you guys know that. So the armor of God is one of the favorite passages in Pentecostal, the Pentecostal world, and we're told that you need to pray your armor on. So it would go like this. So I'll be talking to my parents, and I'll tell them that something hard has happened in my life recently, and... I'm going through some kind of suffering. We've had some kind of a setback. And I'm told, well, have you put your armor on recently? And I'm like, well, I don't know. If the last I can't remember the last time I put the armor on. And, and so literally what you do is, is you have to memorize. I put on the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, sword of spirit, gird my loins with your truth, and my feet are shod with the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. And it's like this incantation that somehow magically the armor comes on and no longer are you vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And so I'm here to tell you today that you, you can pray about the armor, but you don't need to somehow, some kind of magically incant this prayer so that it actually works, okay? That's not what is going on here today, if you grew up in a family like I did. Actually, I spent very little time thinking about the meaning of the armor. It's just, did I say those words out loud, right? Because I was told that Satan can't read our minds, but he can hear our voices, which I don't, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I was told. Um, so you, you end up saying this prayer. I'm telling you, the power of the armor is not in whether or not you say it out loud enough. The power of the armor is that Jesus wears the armor. Jesus is the armor. In fact, in Isaiah 59, he wears the helmet of salvation. In Isaiah 11, he wears the belt of truth. Jesus is the armor, and you have the armor as a Christian through union with Christ. It cannot be taken away from you. You have the armor of God on you, whether or not you pray it enough, that armor is your armor. It's just whether or not you recognize that, whether or not you understand the power that God has given you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another point here as we get going is each piece of armor, even though armor, by definition, is defensive in warfare, There's also an offensive element that Paul is calling us to understand. The sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon, it would seem, on the surface. But there's an offensive and defensive aspect of each piece of the armor. So let's jump into the armor of God and look at each one of these that Paul tells us that we have through union with Christ. First of all, he tells us we have the belt of truth, the belt of truth. So the belt Holds the whole outfit together. So, defensively, if we think about this as a defensive weapon, the truth of God holds everything together. If you have the truth of God, it is like the belt that holds the whole outfit together. If you lose the truth of God, you begin to question the basic notion that God is true, you will find yourself losing ground. You'll find yourself losing that solid defensive position. But offensively, this is interesting and an interesting mental image. So the belt, if you think about how Roman soldiers used to fight, these are all Roman, um, it's Roman outfit um, type of analogies here, Roman armor. They would wear this robe even when they were fighting. And so what they would do, it was really hard to run in the robe. I haven't run in a robe recently, but you can imagine if you had a robe on, and you needed to run somewhere, you would find that to be very difficult. You would find yourself tripping over your sandals. And so what they would do, or their boots, and so what they would do is they would actually, it's, it's all guys on the battlefield, but they would take their robe and they would tuck it in their belt, which is a really funny image, and they would run. And so also offensively, when we, when we put our identity in the truth of God, it actually enables us to move forward. It actually enables us to have forward movement in the gospel, in the face of opposition. So that's the belt of truth. It holds everything together and enables us to run. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. The the breastplate of righteousness. So defensively, the breastplate went over the chest, over the heart. And so there's two different kinds of righteousness we need to think about in terms of defensive and offensive weaponry. Defensively, the type of righteousness righteousness you need to think about is imputed righteousness. So there's a righteousness from God that is given to you through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, and that righteousness is given to you. And when you put that righteousness of Christ over your heart, it shields you from the attacks of the evil one. Because yes, on your own you are not righteous, but in Christ you have been made righteous by this imputed righteousness given to you. That is the defensive breastplate of righteousness. But offensively, as we move forward in the world, there's also a moral righteousness that we're called to take on. And so as we move on the battlefield, as the righteousness of Christ becomes a part of this, we begin to want to follow Christ and shape our lives around Christ. And that's when we can take offensive ground. Righteousness can be lived out in our lives and in the world around us. So the breastplate of righteousness. The third Piece of armor is the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. So the shoes of the gospel, this is about evangelism, mainly. This is about evangelism. And defensively, shoes are really important because they enable you to have stability. You can stand your ground. You you cannot be sliding around everywhere. You need new shoes. Like if you're playing basketball, you don't have good shoes. You're just all over the place. You can't play good defense. You need good shoes in order to stand your ground. But also, offensively, this is an offensive image that we're called to follow Christ out and to practice evangelism, to carry the gospel out into the world around us and to be ready to do that, to speak into the anxiety of our age. And, you know, actually, as we think about evangelism, one of the greatest topics that you could bring up with someone right now is the peace of Jesus Christ. Where do you find peace in this world? We have an ancient faith in an anxious age where do you go where do you look to find peace you find it in Jesus Christ if you're a christian where is everyone else looking right now so there's the first three then the fourth is the shield of faith the shield of faith so defensively uh, this is not there's two different kinds of roman shields there's a little one that you can carry around to kind of block little arrows or to block, uh, maybe a sword that's coming at you. But this is talking about the ones that you might have seen in Braveheart or Gladiator or maybe Lord of the Rings. They're the giant ones. They're the ones that when, you know, on Braveheart and that William Wallace scene where they're t- they says hold, 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 are these giant shields that you can hide your whole body behind. That's the kind of shield that's being referred to here. And the shield of faith can quench the devil's fire tip darts that he is shooting at you. Those fire tip darts look and sound like all kinds of things because Satan is strategic. And so he knows where your vulnerabilities are. And so he may know, for example, that you really still have, are having a very hard time experiencing forgiveness for sins that were done in your past. Uh, sins, sins, whatever, uh, a whole season of your life that you were in. And so he's going to tell you, as soon as you want to step out in faith, he's going to tell you, you can't do that because... Remember how guilty you are for whatever you did. Remember that season of your life, how could God ever use you? And so the shield of faith, we take it out, we hide behind it, it quenches the dart. How does it quench the dart? Because the gospel says you cannot out the cross of Christ. You cannot outsin it. There is no degree of sin, there's no season of sin that Christ cannot forgive you wholly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the words of, and can it be the hymn. I woke up thinking about this hymn this morning. It says, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. So defensively we hide behind the shield. But offensively we can go out. And we can take that faith and, and combining this with the shoes of peace. You know, what, one of the things I love to do when I feel like I'm being tempted or I'm being, um, I'm being lied to by the devil is I like to pray for my unbelieving friends. I like to pray for, for a couple of people in my life that don't know Jesus because that keeps the devil busy. It keeps him busy. He, if he's going to attack me, I'm going to give him more work to do. And so I start praying for my unbelieving friends and neighbors. And that's a way that you can go on the offense using the shield of faith and pray for your friends. The fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet back in the Roman day was one and a half inches thick, and it was so strong and so fortified that even an axe couldn't pierce through the metal. It was so well made. And the idea of the helmet of salvation is that the knowledge of the salvation of Christ that he has given you, when Satan attacks your mind, when he attacks you mentally, and you can rest in the assurance of salvation that you have in Jesus Christ, it's so powerful. You can rest in that assurance of salvation that he has given to you. And also, offensively, as you go out, um, this salvation that is secured for us in the past, it will be experienced by us fully in the future. And so we know that even though we struggle now on that final day, that that final and full day as we battle and wage war, we will get to that point when we will actually experience all of that salvation that Christ has given to us. All right, the sixth piece of armor and the final one is the sword of the Spirit, which we're told is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you've been to like a famous museum, uh, maybe in Washington or somewhere in Europe. Uh, It's fascinating to go in and look at the swords that are on display there, and they are just, some of them are just ridiculously massive. You're like, how did human beings hold those? And humans were smaller in general than we were. I mean, how did that work? They had to go through tremendous training, and it's easy for us to think of a sword in that way, and to think of the Bible in that way, and that it's just part of antiquity that's really interesting, But if I really want answers today in my life, in the real world, then the Bible, maybe can give me some of those answers, but it really can't give me many of them. It's easy to put the Bible in a museum and to think the Bible isn't that relevant for us, but we're told it is the sword of the Spirit. It's written by the Holy Spirit, which means that it's timeless. If the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, it means it's timeless, and there are so many areas that we can learn from today and so defensively as we learn God's word it stabilizes us in the world so that we can continue to hope in Christ and then offensively we can go out with a strong practical grace to fight the good fight of faith and so when you're thinking about the armor of God think about it this way this armor is already yours it's already been given to you you have it now you need to learn how to use it. Instead of thinking, oh, I just need to pray to put it on because I'm going through a hard time, think about how to use it, how to utilize it. What does it mean for me to, be, to rest in the assurance of salvation that I've been given in Christ? What does it mean to have imputed righteousness given to me in Jesus Christ? What does it mean for me to now have shoes that are ready, to be ready to go out and share my faith? These are the weapons, the spiritual weapons that we have been given in Jesus Christ. One final point on that is, that is this. Like the fruit of the Spirit, it's easy for us to think that I was only given some of the fruit of the Spirit because I still struggle with peace or I still struggle with joy, but I'm okay in love and all that. But in the fruit of the Spirit, like you got all the fruit of the Spirit when you were, you've been made a Christian. When you were regenerated and reborn, you got all of that given to you. Same with the, with the armor of God. You were given all of the armor of God. Now, there may be certain pieces of armor that you're more familiar with that come more naturally to you, but no, none of you who are Christians out there could say, you know what, actually, I don't think I got those shoes of the gospel because I don't like to do evangelism. Like, we all got that. Or some, you can't be like, oh, you know what, I really struggle with peace, so I don't think I was given uh, the shield of faith to quench those darts. So, like, you got all of those weapons. We just need to learn how to utilize all of them, all right? So that's the armor. We need to know our armor. And then the final point today is we need to learn how to stand for the gospel. So Paul closes his letter with just some general exhortations about how we stand for the gospel in our time. And there are three different areas where he calls us to stand, to take our stand. The first one is prayer. The first one is prayer. You know, some people actually include prayer as a piece of the armor, but I think the better way to think about this is that prayer is part of everything. It's part of every piece of the armor. How do you grow in each of these areas of your life? Well, you pray and you walk with the Lord in those areas. We're told four things about prayer here in this section. Four alls, A-L-L, four alls. First of all, we're told to pray at all times. Pray at all times. There's never a time that doesn't require prayer. We're told to make all prayers and supplications. We're told by Paul to pray about every single thing that's going on in your life. He says to pray with all perseverance. He says to never stop praying. And he says to pray for all the saints, to pray for all of your brothers and sisters. And he issues us a warning when he says to pray for all of these things at all times, all things, all all of the brothers and sisters, all these things. He says, you need to remain alert. You need to remain alert. You know, Olivia and I were hiking on Friday morning, just the two of us. It was a beautiful morning. It was like 45 degrees. We're out by the Haw River. It's this glorious, you know, kind of spring is just breaking in, maybe in North Carolina. We'll see what happens. But it was a nice day, and we're out for this hike and uh, just enjoying it right by the river, and all of a sudden, Olivia's ahead of me, and she jumps back, and there was the snake in the middle of the trail. And that would have sent Andy back to the car right there. I see Andy in the back there. Andy doesn't like snakes. Um, But but yeah, we saw the snake, and we jumped back, and we're like, whoa. I mean, it kind of shocked us because it's early in the season for snakes, really, actually. I think yesterday is probably the first day it could have been warm enough for snakes to come out. But sure enough, we're right there by a river, so a snake is going to go get some water on his first day when he's awake. He's sitting right there in the trail. And we had a, we had a choice to make. We could go back to the car. Uh, we could uh, hike the rest of our hike and be paranoid the entire time so that it ruined the whole hike that we'd seen a snake. We could act like, oh, snake, you know, whatever. No big deal. It's just a snake. Or we could see the snake. Keep hiking, have a great time, enjoy it, but also remain aware that there are snakes and we should be looking for them too. And I think as Christians, we have these options. Sometimes we see a snake and we're like, back to the car. I'm just kidding, Andy. Andy, Andy in real spiritual life wouldn't go back to the car. He'd keep going on. We'd go back to the car and say, I'm done. Um, we could act like it's not a big deal. You know, be like, oh, you know what? You know, Satan's not a big deal. We've talked about that, you know, Whatever. We could become so obsessed with evil and and the devil, and the devil literally under every bush in our lives, or you can continue pressing on, enjoying the day, enjoying life, realizing that at every step you take, you have evil around you. And that is real. That is a real picture of the Christian life. You know, it's like the disciples in Gethsemane. If they only had been aware of how important that night was, I guarantee you they would not have fallen asleep. There's no way. I see the kids congregating out there. This is going to be a fast three points. Let me see if we got light light speed. Um, Yeah, I guarantee you they wouldn't have fallen asleep, but they didn't know their times, and so they they slept. And so we need to know our times. We need to keep praying. Second point is proclamation. The, The gospel proclamation is how you stand for the gospel. You don't just stand. You go out and you share the gospel. And Paul says, above all, He says, pray for the gospel of God, but pray for me, Paul says. Pray for me. And I love that in Paul. Paul is not saying, I'm above needing prayer. No way. He's saying, I need prayer. And I would just say, for me and for Andy and for the elders and the deacons, we covet your prayers. We we need your prayers. Our families need your prayers in order to stand firm in the gospel of grace. And the final point today is, is to love. How do we stand our ground? We love. We love. I love this part at the end, verse 24, how he closes this letter he says, grace to all who love our Lord with a love incorruptible. A love incorruptible. And this is important because at the beginning of the letter, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, in love God predestined us. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says, I pray that you would know the love of God. And now at the end of the book, he says, you do know the love of God. You know the love of God. And you love the Lord with a love incorruptible. But I want to flash you forward to Revelation chapter two, verse four, where he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and what does he say to him? He says, you have stood firm. You have stood against all of these persecutions, and that is good. But he says, I have this one thing against you. You have lost your first love. You have lost your first love. So something happened in those 30 years where it was great that they stood firm, but they had lost their first love. And I think that's a real challenge for us, is we have been through a long and hard couple of years. And it's I mean, it's nice to be inside, but the world and the opposition we face is not getting any easier. And I think it's totally amazing and remarkable that we have stood our ground and we have stood firm. And after we have done everything else, we, have, we, we continue to stand. But my question for us, and I think Paul's question for the Ephesians is, are you standing in love? Are you standing in love? The question for you is this, are you, really, are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you received the love of God that has come to you in the gospel? Have you received that love from Jesus? So that's the first question. Do you know the love of God in your own life? And if the answer is yes, then the second and corollary question is, are you living in that love? Are you you embracing that love and is that love changing you so that you love God and you love one another? Paul calls us to stand for the gospel, to stand, but he calls us to stand with a love and, incorruptible. And I'm telling you, as I prepared this message this week, it caused me to repent. I have I have stood, I have, one of my songs for the last couple of years is, I'm still standing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, sometimes I'm like, how am I still doing this? This is crazy. Um, But have I stood with a love incorruptible? Honestly, sometimes no. Sometimes no. So it's an opportunity for us, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's an opportunity for us to A, if you've not ever received the gospel of grace, this could be your day. We're going to be passing out these elements in just a moment which represent Jesus Christ. You have the love of Christ given to you. He has has set a table for you in the presence of your enemies, this bounty of grace, and it's for you. I encourage you to take the gospel in if you've never taken it in before. And I encourage you, if you've taken the gospel in before, to ask yourself the question, am I experiencing right now the love and forgiveness of God in my own life? God's love for me, his love and forgiveness so that I am loving my family, I'm loving the other people that God has brought into my life. Am I loving that way? The good news of the, of the grace of the gospel is that you have an eternal number of second chances. Do you realize that? You have an eternal number of second chances. You can come every Sunday, every day, every moment of every day for the rest of your life, needy and having sinned and receiving grace, because you cannot outsend the cross. And so I pray that today that all of us would come before Jesus and long for that love incorruptible so that we can experience him. So at this time, this is the first Sunday that we've had the Lord's Supper in our building with children's ministry. Okay. So we're having all of these little changes that we're making. So what we're going to do now, instead of like a Davis Drive, if you were here at that time, you'd have to go downstairs to get your kids. Now you don't have to do that anymore. All you have to do during the song of preparation, there's two things you can do in this song. You can prepare yourself to receive the Lord's Supper. You can also go get your children. Nursery and toddlers still have childcare. You don't have to go get them. You can get them if you want. But you can go get your children. They're in the lobby. You can retrieve them and bring them back in. Why do we do this? You're like, why are you doing this to me right now? We want our children to be able to see the Lord's Supper before they're like nine. Um, We want them to see you taking it so they ask you questions. Why do we do this? What's this all about? And then we can share the gospel with them as they grow up. All right. So we're going to have the song of preparation. Joe's going to lead us with his team. And then in a moment, we will take the Lord's Supper. Prepare your hearts and retrieve your children. Thank you.